Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining us on the Kirk Church Podcast. I'm Aaron Elmore, lead pastor at Kirk of the Hills, located in Tulsa, Oklahoma. This is where you can hear messages from all our pastors and guest speakers. Make sure to subscribe and share with anyone who follows the Kirk. If you want to know more about us, visit us at thekirk.com, like us on Facebook, or follow us on Instagram at the Kirk Church. Let's get started with today's episode. Well, good morning, church. It's good to be with you all. Uh, it's been a number of weeks now since I've been in the pulpit, had a mission trip for a couple weeks, and then an unplanned power outage. Uh, we lost one on that, and then uh, had some planned time off. So it's good to be back. At least it's good for me. I enjoy it. I don't know if it's good for you or not, but uh, I'm glad to be back. And um, this morning we are continuing in in a powerful series on the book of Nahum. Now, before I get started, I will let you know, you may not realize this, but when a, when a regular preacher is out of the pulpit for a while, there's kind of a backlog that happens. Uh, and so today, you know, I have plenty of time to work with and we're trying to cover an entire book of the Bible. So I will clarify this for those of you that are detailed note takers. Uh, this is not an eight point sermon. I promise you. Okay. It is a five point sermon with two pre points and one post, but it is not an eight-point sermon. So uh, let's just be clear on that. I've made a lot of trips to Kansas City over the past decade. Uh, it happens to be the location of the majority of our denominational regional meetings for the Evangelical Presbyterian Church. Uh, we've also got some friends up there. So I've been up to Kansas City a number of times, and there's several different ways to get there, but it seems like there's always construction. Uh, and so there's massive portions of the highway that are, that are uh, just... Yet they redirect you. And so there's not really a whole lot between Tulsa and Kansas City to begin with. And then when you veer off from those roads to secondary roads, you really feel you're like, like you're in the middle of nowhere. Uh, but then when you're driving with GPS and you miss one of those turns, then you're really in trouble because then you are literally driving through cows, fields, and uh, fields of sunflowers. It's beautiful. Uh, but eventually, you'd like to get where you're going. Now, I've noticed this trend with, with GPS, with navigation. It, it no longer asks you to make a, a U-turn. You see, it does a thing called recalculating. And when it recalculates, it seems like there's a bias against having you turn around, but it just sort of keeps rerouting you, and these routes are way longer than they need to be. And here's why I think that they're doing this. In the early days of GPS, do you remember this? You could be looking right where you needed to go. And it would tell you to go down there and make a U-turn and then go down there and make a U-turn and come back to the exact spot where you were. Does anybody remember this? It was bad, okay? The technology has gotten better. And so I think they realized that the last thing a driver wants to do is to have to make a U-turn. For some reason, we just hate. I mean, cars these days will turn on a dime, but we hate making U-turns. And so we will gladly go all the way around the city block. We will gladly go way out of our way if we can do anything to avoid having to make a U-turn. And I'm going to start preaching here in a second because we know this is how it is in life. We don't like making U-turns. We don't like admitting that we missed the turn. We would do anything to not have to make a U-turn. But here's the truth of the matter. Almost always, 
the fastest way to get back on track, the most efficient way to get back on course is that as soon as you realize you've missed the turn, you need to immediately make a U-turn. That's the fastest way. We don't like it. We don't admit that we've made that. But a U-turn is the fastest way to get back. And so this morning we're continuing in this series through the Minor Prophets. The thread that we're emphasizing throughout is really repentance. And biblical repentance doesn't just mean to stop sinning. That's a good start, but that's just behavior modification. We have to stop sinning and do something else. To repent means to turn away from sin and to return to God. Because if we simply just turn away from sin and then we say, oh, wow, I did such a great job. I'm no longer doing that thing I don't want to do anymore. I've resolved that mistake, but we don't turn back to God. Then we're just like recalculating. We're, We're just moving further and further away. And the more that we get off track, the easier it is to continue to veer out in the fields and to get away from the original path that we were supposed to be on. And so repentance is important. You probably heard that the word repent means to turn, and that's close. But the original Hebrew term, what it really means is to return. Not just to turn away, not just to turn in general, but to do a full 180, to return back to God. This is what repentance means. It goes beyond remorse and regret, feeling bad about our sin. It's a complete reorientation of our lives based on an honest assessment of our past and a redirection for our future. And so as we put this series together, we decided to call it U-Turn Required. We all know there's these signs that say, uh, U-Turn Not Allowed. You know what I'm talking about? And suddenly all, all of us who hated making U-Turns, when we actually want to make a U-Turn and we're not allowed to, we get really frustrated. And so we thought about calling the series U-Turn Allowed instead of Not Allowed. But then we realized it's more than that. It's not just allowed. It's required. It's required. To get back on the path in life, a U-turn is required. And it's important to understand that that's not just a one-time thing. That's not just something that you do at the beginning of your spiritual life when you turn away from trying to do life on your own and you turn to God and you surrender all of who you are. That is an important step of the process, but it's not just a one-time repentance. Repentance is an ongoing part of our spiritual formation. And I don't know what your life looks like, but for me, I know that it is a daily thing that is required to admit that I've missed the turn, to turn around, to keep turning back to God, to return to him. It's a commitment to a renewed relationship with God and obedience to his ways. So last week we talked about the book of Jonah, which tells us the story of a prophet who was called to repeat preach repentance to the great city of Nineveh. And the good news is that they repented and the Lord relented. But if you notice here that there's about a hundred years in between Jonah and Nahum. So God is sending another prophet because now apparently they have lost their way again. They did repent, but they failed to pass along the spiritual legacy. You see, the book of Nahum is a striking reminder of the importance of passing on spiritual legacy to the next generation. See, just because things may look like the book of Jonah in our time, after us, they may look more like the book of Nahum, where the people have lost their way 
again. And this happens very quickly. It happens way more quickly than a hundred years and three generations. It can happen within one generation. We must be committed as the people of God. This is a project for all God's people, for all of his church, for every church. It's been said we're only one generation away from dying. Now, I believe that God's big C church will go on with or without our personal obedience. But the individual local church truly is only one generation away from dying. There are many churches in the past, even in our cultural context, that have been powerful churches that have held to the truth that today are no longer churches. They failed to reach the next generation. This is the task of every generation. And so as the people of God, if you consider yourself one of the older generations, I'll let you self-select. I'm getting close here. I'm I'm getting close to 40, so I'm starting to feel that midpoint. Okay, I'll let you self-select. But if you're one of the older generations, it is your spiritual responsibility and privilege to be a part, to invest in the younger generations of the church, to pray for them. To invest in them. To mentor them. Don't be annoyed by them. Don't be annoyed by the fact that you can't understand them. Try to understand them. Invest your time and your money, your talent, your energy. This is the task. We never go past that. We never retire beyond that. We never say, well, I raised my kids. It's the task of each and every member of the church to make sure we pass on the legacy of faith because that's how it works. Another thing I want to point out as we look at the timeline of the 12 minor prophets is that some of these prophecies were written to nations other than Israel or Judah. That might be pretty obvious, but I think it's worth pointing out that God sent messengers, not just to his people, but he sent them to other nations to call them to repentance. This is not just in the minor prophets, right? We have two specific books of the Bible dedicated To the people of Nineveh. We have one to Edom, the book of Obadiah. That's the one that got lost to the power outage. We'll have to come back to that some other day. But there were other nations. We see that even in the major prophets, right? And they're not major because they're better or more important. They're just longer. So Jeremiah that we finally finished in our Bible reading plan this morning. Woo! The longest book of the Bible. In Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Isaiah, you see these sections that's called oracles to the nations. Not Israel, not Judah. These are specific messages calling, God calling people to repentance. And so an overall message of the prophets is that all of human life and activity is under the sovereign rule of God. I'm going to say that again because that's pretty important. All of human life and activity is under the sovereign rule rule of God. It's not just those who believe in God. It's not just those who know God's law that are accountable to him. No, all people, every nation, every person is accountable to God. Whether you believe in God or not, you are still accountable to God because he is sovereign over every aspect of everything that happens in the world. And let's think about that. That is, that is incredibly comforting. That is incredibly comforting. To know that there's a God who's in control, who knows it all, who sees it all, who cares. And we have hope that one day he's going to resolve it all and make everything right. Incredibly comforting, real hope. But at the same time, that is also incredibly challenging and convicting to think about the fact that God is sovereign 
over everything. And he sees everything. And he knows every aspect of my life. That's convicting. We're glad for grace, aren't we? Because we all need the opportunity for a U-turn. So I want to invite you this morning to go with me to do a little intellectual time travel back 2,600 years ago to the ancient city of Nineveh. Nineveh is the oldest and most populous city of the ancient Assyrian Empire. It's situated on the east bank of the Tigris River. It's located at the intersection of important trade routes, and it was an impressive and powerful ancient city. This is a a, a sort of modern rendering of what it may have looked like based upon some excavations that were done in the the middle 1800s. The city has recently undergone development to become the new capital of the Assyrian Empire. It's a vast metropolis surrounded by massive walls, some as long as seven miles in length. It's perhaps the most populated city in the world at this time. The fertile lands surrounding Nineveh are perfect for growing the massive volume of crops that would be needed to feed the people in the city. There's plenty of rainfall. And upstream from the city, you'll find orchards planted with vines and fruit trees and olive groves. It's a beautiful, impressive, powerful city. But as we know from history, many times, powerful and impressive things are built at the cost of oppressing human lives. And this is exactly what the Assyrians have done. They have built this incredible empire by being cruel, by being relentless, by taking over anyone who did not agree with their ways, anyone who tried to oppose them. And the king of Assyria and his leadership has built this empire out of a position of human pride. This is what humans do when we try to make a great name for ourselves rather than God. And this is what God is upset about. He is truly angry. The Assyrian Empire was known for its military conquests, its absolute cruelty. And God raises up a prophet named Nahum to announce once again God's impending judgment upon the great city. How would you like that job? Not me. We know very little about Nahum. His name roughly translates God comforts which is a sort of ironic name in that his message was anything but comforting, at least for the Ninevites. It was, however, comforting for the people of God. If you remember on the timeline, there's an important event that happens between the books of Jonah, I'm sorry, yeah, Jonah and Nahum. In between there, the northern kingdoms, the northern kingdom of Israel, the northern tribes has been conquered by these very Assyrians. Now, what's hard for us to wrap our mind around is that God has, in fact, allowed that to happen. He raised up these Assyrians to come and judge his people for their sin and turning away from him. Now, God's saying, I'm going to bring even these people who I use to bring about my judgment. I'm going to bring judgment on them. And how's he going to do that? He's going to do that by bringing in a group called the Babylonians, who, oddly enough, are the ones that God uses to judge the southern kingdom of Judah. It's a mess, isn't it? And what we see in the prophets is that God will bring judgment on any people that turn away from him. And this is not a very popular message these days to talk about the judgment of God. But the reality is we have to see that God's judgment is actually part of his grace. Because the meanest thing 
that God could do to human beings is to just leave us alone. You realize that? That's the worst thing that God could do is say, you know what, I'm just going to leave humans to their own devices and have them figure it out. The fact that God intervenes and brings his judgment in order to try to draw people back to the place where they need to be at the beginning, this is part of his grace. His grace and his judgment work together. The fate of Assyria is a prophecy of doom for all who oppose God, even those that the Lord has used as an instrument of his judgment. Historians have offered various reasons for why the great city of Nineveh fell. It's kind of baffling because it was so impressive. And they look back and they're trying to figure out how could this even happen? Why did it fall? And they've come up with various reasons. They've said it may have been internal corruption. It may have been the rise of Babylon. There may have been other external factors, weather, who knows. But the prophecy of Nahum tells us exactly why Nineveh fell. It's because of the avenging wrath of God. And what a terrible thing to experience the wrath of God. We prefer to focus on the other side of God's character, his grace, his love, and his mercy, but we have to understand that they're both working together. And we have a hard time wrapping our minds around that tension, but this is what Scripture tells us. God is good, and he's gracious and loving, merciful, but he is just, and he must set the world right. And so the book of Nahum is recorded in the form of an oracle. An oracle is any divine pronouncement through a prophet that directs human action in the present or foretells future events. Although they are heavy pronouncements, they often take the form of poetry. And so that can kind of obscure some of the harshness of it. But it's very beautiful language. And key characteristics of biblical oracles are that they come from God, they emphasize God's character and his sovereignty, and they are intended to bring both challenge and comfort. So it's appropriate as we look at this oracle to do the same. We'll ask two questions. Number one, what does the book of Nahum tell us about God? And number two, what are the resulting comforts and challenges for us? So what does the book of Nahum tell us about God? Well, what every page of scripture does, which is that God is sovereign. This is a basic truth. And yet somehow we need need to be reminded of this regularly, don't we? We continue to live our lives as though God were not. But God is sovereign. He is great in power. God is in complete control of all things at all times. Again, Jonah and Nahum remind us that God is in control of the destiny, not just of his people, but of all nations, all empires, and he brings all people to account. He reigns supreme over politics and policies and people, whether or not that seems to be the case from our perspective. God allows a lot in his patience, in his mercy. He allows a lot that is not according to his will to a certain extent, but nothing can go against God's big W will, his ultimate plan and purpose for the world. And we're allowed to ask a lot of questions as we wrestle with God's sovereignty. One of those questions is why, Lord? Why? The biblical authors ask that question. We're allowed to ask it. Another related question is, how long, O Lord? God, how long are you going to allow this to happen? How long are you going to allow this injustice to prevail in our community, in that nation, in that country? How long, Lord? 
And sometimes we get answers to those questions. At other times, maybe we don't see the answer, even though it's there. And at other times, we may get an answer and not like that particular answer. We're allowed to wrestle with those things. We're allowed to not understand how God can be sovereign, and yet our world can be such a mess. We're allowed to struggle with that and not understand. In fact, we should expect that we won't fully be able to understand that because we are finite humans. But the story of the Bible is that God is sovereign over the world. He sees all, he knows all, and he cares. And he will bring about his ultimate justice, and he has the power to do it. He's shown it over and over again. He's the God of history, but he's also the God of your life individually. Second, we see that God is jealous. The intensity and and nature of this divine word is apparent from the opening lines. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. He takes vengeance and is filled with wrath. The Lord takes vengeance on his foes and vents his wrath against his enemies. This word jealous here is sometimes translated zealous. It comes from a title that God gave himself in Exodus 34, where he says that he is the jealous Lord or the zealous Lord. Now, the context of that statement is that the people of God has been rescued out of slavery in Egypt, and very quickly they have turned away into idolatry. In fact, the exact moment before he gives this title to himself, the jealous Lord, the the jealous God, the people of God have started worshiping a golden calf. And God says, I am a jealous Lord. He is rightly jealous for the worship of his people. In other words, he's saying, look, I will not rescue you and then allow this man-made thing, this silly idol, this false God to get the credit for the provision and direction in your lives. I will not have it. I am jealous. Only I will get the credit. And it's hard for us to understand a holy jealousy because we can only see human versions of it that are all tainted by sin. But there is a holy jealousy where God says, I will be at the center. And again, people misunderstand this. They say, wasn't this a narcissistic God? Why is he making it all about him? Well, whenever a human being makes it all about them, it is wrong because no human is worthy of that much focus and glory. But God is. It's not wrong. It's actually loving. It's right that God should be the focus, that he should be the center of our lives, that we should place worship of him above all things. It is right that God is jealous for our attention because it is what we were made for. This was the great sin of the king of Assyria. He was living to promote his own glory rather than God's. And with that focus... This is what human beings do. This pride led to the oppression of many people, but true justice and human flourishing are only grounded in the character and the love of God. Next, we see that God is patient. God is patient. Verse 3, The Lord is slow to anger, but great in power. His patience with Nineveh was demonstrated through the ministry of Jonah. He sent a specific messenger to them, And they did turn away, but their heartfelt change didn't last long. They didn't pass it on to the next group of people. And they have turned so far away. 
that God must take action. We must never mistake God's patience for aloofness or weakness. Second Peter 3, 9. It says, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. I think this is one explanation for why we see so many horrible things happening in the world and we think, my goodness, why has God not taken action here? And it's not an easy answer. It doesn't solve all our problems. But I think one answer biblically we have is that the Lord is patient. He is patient. And, and we like his patience when it's for us, right? We just don't like his patience demonstrated in the lives of other people that we deemed worse or different from us. Right? It's like two, two jealous siblings, and one likes that favor, that patience from their parent, but the, the other one doesn't like it when it's not being given to them. God is patient, and that is a good thing. However, his patience lasts until it lasts, and there will come a day when he will make the wrongs right. And God sent the messenger Nahum to tell the people of Nineveh, that time has come. Your time has run out. And we see that God is just. And because God is just, he must take decisive action. And with an overwhelming flood, he will make an end of Nineveh. He will pursue his foes into the realm of darkness. And whatever they plot against the Lord, he will bring to an end. Trouble will not come a second time. What a statement. Now, trouble will come to the people of God again, but it won't be the Assyrians. No, after this moment, when the city of Nineveh falls, its influence is gone, and it is unheard of from that point on in history. The Assyrians are done. Because God says, your time has come. This will not happen again. The book of Nahum joins the chorus of biblical messages telling us that God sees how humans treat each other. And when we do not treat each other as fellow image bearers of God, he is angry and he promises vengeance against all who oppose his will and way of life. God sees all that is unjust in our world and he must respond because he is a just and holy God. His response and timing is tempered by his grace and mercy, but make no mistake, he will hold the world accountable. This is comforting to know that God will bring ultimate justice to our world. But it's also challenging because he calls us as his people to also be people of justice, to treat our neighbors as fellow image bearers, to see injustice in the world and to fight back against it by the grace of God. We are challenged not to be part of those who participate in injustice, but to fight actively against it. For one day all peoples and all nations will stand before Almighty God. And there's a lot about that I don't know, but I can tell you, friends, you want to be on the side of mercy. You want to be on the side of grace. You want to be part of those who have repented and turned away from our wicked ways to experience the goodness of God. The final attribute that we see in this text is that God is good. And I really think that this is 
the linchpin of all the attributes. It's the one that brings it all together. Because if God is, is all-powerful and He is everywhere and He sees everything and He's involved in everything, but He's not good, then that's not good. <laughs> not good for us. He's like many gods that, that people in our world today believe. He's a God who's fickle, a God that you can't know how this God will react or not. A God who sometimes seems to do what is right and at other times not. Sometimes seems to be merciful and at other times not. God has proven himself over and over again that he always does what is good and what is right. And we don't always see it that way. But he's proven that he is loving. He's not fickle. He's not capricious. He's not selfish like these human leaders. He is perfectly good, and we can trust in him. But our challenge is that we need to seek to know what is good and to walk in these things, to demonstrate his goodness through our lives as we are image bearers of our good and holy and just God. And finally, Nahum lands the plane in verse 15 of this opening chapter with the good news and a whisper ahead to the ultimate good news. Verse 15, look there on the mountains, the feet of one who brings good news, who proclaims peace, strikingly similar to the book of Isaiah 52. that says how beautiful in the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace, who bring good tidings and proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, your God reigns. And the good news in this immediate context coming from Nahum for ultimately the people of Judah is that your oppressors, God is going to deal with them justly. And that is good news for them. He is going to conquer those who oppress you. But as Isaiah does also, it points ahead to the new covenant and even better arrangement where an even greater oppressor would be destroyed by a just and holy God. And that ultimate oppressor of human beings is sin. That's the ultimate oppressor for all of us. And so this word of good news for God's people back then, it even points ahead to now to what we know, which is even greater news, that our oppressor, our spiritual oppressor, has been defeated by the work of Jesus and his perfect sacrifice. But it calls us to come and to make a U-turn. It demands, compels us, come. Turn away from trying to do life on your own. It compels even those of us who are followers of Jesus to continue to turn away from trying to do life on our own and to come back to return to God, to find life in him. The ultimate comfort and challenge of Nahum's prophecy is found starting in verse 7, that God is a good refuge for those who trust in him. Yet he is an overwhelming flood for those who are against him. It's a very sobering message. We receive his mercy. Will you serve him? Turn away from that rebellion. What will you choose this day? Will you join me as we pray together about these things? Heavenly Father, we thank you that even in these ancient words written many, many years ago to people who were far different from us, 
We can see ourselves in the Ninevites. We can see our tendency toward idolatry. We can see our tendency toward pride. Towards lust, towards jealousy, towards anger, towards bitterness, towards resentment. God, you you name it, we have participated. But God, would we heed your gracious words of warning to us to come back, to return to you. No matter how far we have strayed off path, that we would turn around and come back to the path of true life. So God, would you show us this way? Would you, by the power of your Holy Spirit, bring conviction? Would you stir hearts? That if even there's someone here today that has never turned to you for the first time, God, that you would speak to them, you would soften their hearts, and they would consider that decision. Father, we pray that you would move in each and every one of us. Help us to be people who quickly repent and turn back to you to receive your grace and your mercy. For God, you are a good and strong refuge for all that turn to you. We love you and we give you thanks. In Jesus' name, amen.